Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are, I'm excited. We are finally hitting the end of this, uh, this d- farewell discourse of Jesus. Um, and we're in the seventh Sunday of Easter, which I actually don't think we have every year. Is that um, I think we do. I think do we do. Do we have it yeah, every year? Yeah, I think we do. So anyway, we are on uh, John 17, verses 20 through 26. And um, yeah, tell us how this uh, how this begins. Well, I have to say, uh, you know, to begin with, I feel like a broken record because once again, the Revised Common Lectionary takes a portion of the whole passage for our lesson for today. I mean, obviously this passage belongs, the, the chapter is a, is a whole passage. And this week, it's the end of Jesus' prayer for his disciples and the church. And we looked at the the earlier part of this prayer last year, and we saw that this chapter really kind of has a uh, kind of a disturbing um, sense of us versus them, and the all you're either all or nothing, you're either all in or you're all out. Kind of thinking that I suggested before stems from the situation of the Joe hunting community feeling under threat, both from the outside and from within. And I'll have to admit that for that reason, last year was the first time in my whole ministry career that I've preached on that earlier part of the chapter mm-hmm. because it's just so troubling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've preached on anything from this chapter, I've usually focused on our lesson for today because of the emphasis on unity in, in the mm-hmm. lesson for today. Well, yeah, and in that way, it's really it's really beautiful that it's this kind of um, unity. We're going to find out that the Reformers actually find this to be a remarkable um a remarkable passage. They they take a lot out of it, and and uh, it certainly is one that's central to their doctrine, as opposed to kind of on the outside. So, um, we'll talk more about that later. But um, um, this, I think, I think it's part of a prayer, but it does sound a little different, as you it kind does. of mentioned already. Yeah. Give us some background on that. Well, and we talked about this last year. Uh, it's really difficult for me to see this prayer as coming from Jesus. And I'll mention that even Theodore of Mopsuestia and John Chrysostom didn't see this as an actual prayer. Right. And, and, and those of you that don't know, those are fathers. Those are church, church fathers. fathers. So that's early, huge. very important. Theodore was a, was a pioneer in, in, in biblical interpretation. And John Chrysostom was, you know, just an amazing preacher and right. teacher. Yeah. And these, you know, these ancient, these ancient figures basically made this observation. So I, I point that out because it's going to be read in your red little Bible. And, yeah. um, yeah. and I think we have some question mark there about the, really when you're looking at the broad text, well, and Alan and points out. even though, even though an evangelical scholar like G.R. Beasley Murray wants to insist that this chapter reflects Jesus stance and that his hour has come and is therefore his prayer of consecration. He has to concede that admittedly the entire last discourses and the prayer have been written from the evangelist position of the post Pentecostal period. So, so even an evangelical scholar admits that this is something that's a composition of the, either the, the, the evangelist or the we, mm-hmm of John 21, 24, who put the, put the, the, the gospel into its final form. You know, the temptation is, I think, to find this useless then. Right. Uh, you know, if, if it's not from Jesus, then why is it still there? Or why, uh, why, you know, why would we want to preach on it? Maybe we just jump over it. 
Well, and as I said, I have admitted <laughs> I, I have tended to jump over it in the past. But, you know, dealing with this in the context of the podcast has really kind of forced the issue for me. And, you know, one of the things that I would say, and we can probably discuss this a little later if we want to, is that in John's gospel, the voice of the Johannine Jesus, the voice of the evangelist, and the voice of the we who put the gospel into its final form, is that those voices are so interwoven, it's impossible to separate them out from one another. Mm-hmm. We know that we have a distinctly Johannine interpretation of Jesus' message. Um, that interpretation in and of itself doesn't invalidate you know, the idea that, that um, even much or most of of you know what's attributed to Jesus comes from Jesus but it's it's through the lens of the evangelist mm-hmm. theology and through the lens of the theology of the we who put it into its mm-hmm. final form mm-hmm. and and so from that standpoint i don't have any problem talking about especially the themes that i think are consistent um, you know, I, I, some of the themes in, in this chapter, I don't think are consistent with what you find in Jesus teaching elsewhere. And I have a problem emphasizing things like, you know, the world being right, so negative. Right, I, I exactly. have a problem talking about the world that way, because that's not really the way I understand Jesus. Right. And, and I agree. And very, yeah, very interesting. As I'm thinking about it, it's almost like we have a, almost like I have a realized theology within a within a time frame which i think actually gives us some some that space to be able to interpret mm-hmm. the, the interpretation <laughs> today right yeah. and to make it applicable to today because as i told you earlier the reformers think this is probably one of the most important passages yes of, i'm not surprised of of scripture so but i i have this wonderful aha moment about how scripture itself even lends itself to interpretation yeah. well because because we see i think all scripture is an interpretation right first of all but we see the interpretation i think here a little more clearly right because you know we have the synoptic gospels and the voice of jesus in the synoptic gospels and all this negative language about the world, especially, is is not mm-hmm. consistent with the the language of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. So that's that's a part of it, you know. I'm, um, you know, uh, I've mentioned last year that I find it strange that Jesus prays about himself in the third person in the first three verses of the chapter. <laughs> he he prays right. about your son and the son, and he speaks of himself as him, and he even speaks of himself as Jesus Christ. Yeah, which he would not. Have, no, really, I would mean, not have done right. I mean, the only other place where you find that is John twenty thirty one, where it says all these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, mm-hmm. and that right. by believing you might have life in His name. So to me, I think that's a clear pointer that we're we're dealing. With, it's like with the prologue. You know, we saw the right. prologue as an introduction that was the responsibility mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. evangelist and or the final editors. I think we're dealing with that here, except here it's more of a summation. Mm-hmm. Because basically what's happening is the farewell discourses are coming to a close and now the passion narrative is going to begin. Right. And you know, Jesus' hour has come and he's going to move to where right. he's going to the cross. Right. And so this chapter is an important transition to prepare wow. the dis- ostensibly the disciples, but perhaps even more so the Johannine church that is receiving this gospel yeah. to prepare them for the just the notion that Jesus is going right, to die. Right, right. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, wow, this is really, really rich. What are some of the other challenges with this passage? Well, and as I've mentioned before, the us versus them mentality of John's gospel really comes to the fore in this chapter. And, you know, the concept of the world 
is an ambiguous one in John's gospel. There are some places where it's positive and there's some places where it's not so positive. But the references in the farewell discourse are almost entirely negative and those negative statements are particularly characteristic of that earlier section of the yeah, prayer yeah, in John yeah, yeah. chapter we saw 17. That. Mm-hmm. We saw that last year. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there Jesus says he does not even pray for the world. Yeah. Yeah. He does not even pray for the world. That doesn't make sense with in at least the Jesus that I know, right? Well, it, it's, it's, to me, it's almost impossible to reconcile the fact that this prayer speaks of the world in such strong and negative terms with statements in the other Gospels where Jesus reflects the characteristically biblical view mm-hmm. that the Father's love extends to all persons. Oh, right, That's right. not just, just Jesus. That's the biblical view. Right, and Jesus came for the world, right? Whether, I mean, they're, whether they're righteous or not, and I think of Matthew 5, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, he causes the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust, mm-hmm. and he causes the rain to fall right. on, on the good right. and the bad alike. And in an agricultural setting, sunshine and rain are blessings that make you make it possible for you to raise crops so in other words god's blessings are distributed to all regardless of your your character and so you know that 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 drawing the line between us and them just really goes against the grain of that i agree and to me again i think it reflects the situation of the johannine community they were they were an embattled community they were they were Mm -hmm. fighting the synagogue they were fighting among themselves right right I just keep my eyes just pop open wide as we're thinking about this because I can see now how if you weren't really fully steeped in this, it could be a really could take you could take young people down a real interesting rabbit hole. Well, I mean, I hear I hear grown adults speaking about the world in this way. Yeah. In a very negative way. And and I'm I I don't I don't correct them because I mean it's something that's been ingrained for for generations. But Uh, I I really don't I don't see that as reflective of Jesus. No, no. So (laughs) this brings us to our passage for today, this particular prayer. Yeah. So the prayer really makes a significant shift from the earlier part, right at the start. Jesus says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a much more positive uh, direction that that the prayer is taking. And so what Jesus asks on behalf not only of his disciples, but those who believe in him through their word, and perhaps this is a specific reference to the Johannine community here, it changes. Instead of praying for their protection from the world and from the mm-hmm. evil one in this kind of negative context, mm-hmm. he prays that they may be one. Right. And now here the prayer may be shifting from the external threats to the Johannine community, especially from the synagogue, to the internal divisions that were threatening its right. cohesion. Mm-hmm. And we know this from the Johannine letters, uh, that there was significant internal strife within the Johannine community, both connected with divergent views of the person of Christ, which we see in First mm-hmm. and Second John, and with tensions simply over leadership mm-hmm. and power and authority, which we see in Third mm-hmm. John. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, and, and again, Beasley Murray, the evangelical Johannine scholar, says that the letters of John reveal the existence of deep divisions within the Johannine communities. And while there's no hint of reference to them in the prayer, it is scarcely conceivable that the evangelist did not have them in mind as he penned the prayer. I, I think it's, I think, and I think he's spot on here. I think some, a, lot of this, a lot of this language reflects that situation. Yeah. Wow. It's just... Uh... It's hard for me to wrap my brain around almost. There's just, it's so, 
There's just so much going well, on. Well, we tend to we tend to think of of the the early church through rose-colored glasses well, I think as if so. they were they right. had it all down. They had it all, all down. All you got to do is read 1 Corinthians and know right. that wasn't and the case. And we know that's not the case. <laughs> we know that's not the case. Uh, anyway, I I, I I find this just this, this is fascinating and I also find this shift here fascinating too mm-hmm. in its final form. Uh, it 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 strikes me um just at the kind of the the nuance of this this word world and i think you're going to talk about that mm-hmm. more later but mm-hmm. um um th- that we want to pinpoint it, it it's used one way and mm-hmm. i think it's used it's, it's used more deeply yeah. and we do that with our own language we right. use that in way we use world yes, actually exactly. but we don't want to give it that nuance but what i know alan's going to talk later about that so let's yep. let's talk about um the theme that that at least i'm going to preach about which is unity (laughs) (laughs) right right i have preached on this passage and that theme as well and and the theme of the unity of the community that claims to follow christ is an important one not only here but throughout the new testament but it's presented in its uniquely johannine form here as you father are in me and i am in you may they also be in us and so that unity Mm -hmm. that is connected with jesus and through jesus connected with the unity that the father and the son share that's a very uniquely johannine way of expressing Mm -hmm. christian unity and we've already seen that the key factor in defining the christian community in john's gospel is their relationship to jesus and through him their relationship with the father Mm -hmm. this relationship is of such a nature that believers are included in the love and unity that jesus shares with the father as we've Mm -hmm. seen before we saw that in john 14 just a couple weeks ago we saw it also in john 15 last year when we looked at that now paul's notion of unity is a little is is also relational but Mm -hmm. he tends to use different words he he speaks of it as a as a unity of the spirit or a unity Mm -hmm. in christ or a unity in the body of christ but i think it's still a very much a relational kind of unity. yeah i I don't see that as being contradictory no no it's just a it's just a different way of of phrasing it Uh, sure okay yeah okay yeah so we are moving on uh, is that um you're moving on in this um in this prayer, tell us more now. I think more maybe about this world. Yeah, well, and and again, the prayer in John 17 makes another significant shift here from the almost exclusively negative view of the world to one that I would say is more neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, just reading the passage, um, if there is a positive note in this prayer, it is that the disciples, as well as those who will come to believe through their testimony, would have the same unity that Jesus shares mm-hmm. with the Father. And the purpose of this unity, then, is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, this is one of the few references to the world in the farewell discourse that is not negative. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you fought find when you look at the word cosmos in John's gospel is that once you hit that farewell discourse, almost all the references to the world are, are almost exclusively negative. And here the primary connotation in the earlier earlier part of John's gospel resurfaces. The cosmos is the world of humanity who are in need of salvation by God and are the objects of God's love, as you find in John mm-hmm, three sixteen, mm-hmm. right? For God so loved right, the world. It's right, cosmos right. there. You know, and it is it is always the same word. It is always the same word. It, it, cosmos is the same word throughout John's gospel. Okay. It's just there are times when it's more there's a more positive connotation. Okay. There's times when it's just a more negative connotation. Being in the world just means living this mortal life it right. just, okay. just means being yeah. in this mortal life yeah. and there are yeah. times when it's a negative connotation the world is sort of the world of humanity turned against god yeah or, 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 or the world of humanity opposed to the disciples 
I don't think but that's... But again, it's the context that right. defines that. And I okay. realize, you know, uh, you mentioned, you know, how does someone who's just starting off with their understanding of Greek get that? And it's, it's not really rocket science. It's just really right. um, engaging in a close reading of the passage in its context. Because the context of John 3.16 is obviously right. going to point to a more positive view of the world. And the context of the use of the world in the farewell discourse is obviously going to point to a more mm-hmm. negative use that the world is kind of threatening. And and we use this. Right, Again, right. as you mentioned, even our own use of the world, we speak of, this is my father's world. I right. mean, that's a, be- that's a, that's a very right. positive view yeah. of the world. Yeah. But then we speak of, you know, the world of, of violence and oppression and injustice, right? right? right. So, <laughs> so, yeah. We can yeah. do it. We so can it do the has same that. It's, 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 you know, I just think when we, world is in itself such a, a massive word, it has mm-hmm. so much going on and it, be it in Greek or in English. No. And, and I think that's, we forget about that. So but I think the solution is, is the same in both is just I, right. for, in, for both English and Greek mm-hmm. is just pay, pay very careful attention to the context. And sometimes you also, that means pay attention to something that I've mentioned before that doesn't often get taught. And that's the pragmatics. What's the situation? Mm. And again, that's that's where I well, bring in the situation of the Jahanian community because the reason why I think the the cosmos becomes more negative in this final farewell discourse is because there right. I think the evangelist and or the we who are putting it in the, the gospel in the final form are really addressing the community in their right. situation. I think what's interesting and and perhaps would is a little bit challenging for a new interpreter is the shift within the farewell discourse mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. because you're kind of even if you've even got everything else yeah. right, you've got it, got it figured out. And of course, your English helps are telling you this is the farewell discourse. Your assumption isn't going to be that it changes. Mm-hmm. It changes in its usage that much. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just something to be aware of. That, that actually, and everybody, not including Alan, recognize that there's this shift that goes on. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I would say, I would say, what happens is, you know, I've attributed that negative view to the the evangelist and or the final editors of the gospel as their interpretation of Jesus' words that are addressed to people who feel themselves under threat. Mm -hmm. And so they need sort of this kind of protective sense of, you know, mm-hmm. we're safe in the community and we've got some walls between us and the, and right. the world out there to protect ourselves. Right. So moving on then, um, Tell us a little bit more then about this, the unity here. Yeah, so the unity of those who follow Christ in discipleship, according to this passage, is intended to convince the world to believe that you have sent me. And this way of framing belief is different from what we normally find in John's gospel. If you've, if you, you know, you may or may not have dug into the Greek of John's gospel to be able enough to be able to see this, but the most frequent use of the verb pistuo in John's gospel is found in the construction pistuo ice, which is normally translated believe Mm -hmm. in. And it's some 35 out of 90 total Mm -hmm. usages. After that, the next most common use is the simple verb pistuo by itself, just to believe, mm-hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. 27 out of some 90 times. And sometimes that use of the word pistio does shade off in the idea of maybe assent, but for the most part, it, it also denotes faith. Okay. And then after that, the next most frequent use is the use of pistio with an object in the dative case, again, which connotates faith. Jesus can say, believe in me. And it's just pistuo with the dative emoi, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's 15 out of 90 uses. And then finally, we have our construction here, pistuo hati, uh, which 
is indeed used in John's gospel for faith, but most of the occurrences hmm. occur in the farewell discourse and the passion narrative. There's only four out of the total 12 usages that are, that are found before the farewell discourse and the passion narrative. And so it, it's, it, the language might seem strange, mm -hmm. be, mainly because the idea of believing that you sent me might seem a rather weak way to frame faith in Jesus Christ. And it might sound more like just simply giving intellectual assent to some proposition. Alan, so I'm going to take you back because I'm not sure our listeners are going to be exactly sure how one is going to interpret pistu hoti yeah right i mean what would what would you what would you translate that as i would translate it as believe that believe that but okay. but i would say it is indicative of faith and and i think we're going to see this in a little bit that that basically that's the way john uses this construction even though it's different from the more common uses of faith mm -hmm. in John's gospel, the faith language in right, John's gospel, right. it is one of the options for faith language okay, in John's okay, gospel. Okay. And so um, the idea of believing that you sent me uh, to us might sound like a weak way to frame faith, and we might think it's just one of a sent, but actually the idea that, that God had sent Jesus is one of the key themes in John's mm -hmm. gospel. Um, related right. to Jesus and his mission and the faith that he calls people to have in him. Jesus consistently calls him to, to believe that the Father has sent me. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all of the other usage of this construction in John refer to faith, not assent. And in fact, mm. you know, John 20, 31, these things were written so that you might believe that Right. Jesus is the Messiah. Oh yes, yes, and, yes, and yes. by believing, you might right, right. you might have life in His name. So okay. uh, clearly, that is pastuo hati is mm -hmm. being used in that context of faith that that it relates to salvation. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think what what we may conclude is that the unity of Jesus' disciples is what will lead the world to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's that's the point that he's saying. Right. Now we might have assumed that, but there's some obstacles in the language itself along the way that I've been trying to sign a sort well, of smooth away, sort of, yeah. you know, clear away so that we can see our way clear well, to see this. Well, and the reformers are going to see some doctrinally important things about this language, actually, mm -hmm. in terms of the relationship between Father and Son and mm -hmm. Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, I, I think that gets into the weeds for many of our listeners in some ways, but it really becomes important in Reformation mm -hmm. theology. So mm -hmm. I, this is really helpful uh, for me to have this kind of uh, kind of um, detailed out a little yeah. bit, um, um, it's different language than what we would, would normally expect reading the Greek of John's Gospel. Mm -hmm. But it's another one of the ways that yeah, John's Gospel yeah, no, it, frames it, it faith. Yeah, it yeah. works, and clearly, it's not like it's an anomaly. I mean, he's using this pistu hoti twelve. You have twelve times. Twelve out of ninety times, which is you it's know, not it's not very many. Yeah, but it's not it's about like it's fifteen percent of the usage. It's not like it's one time. No, it's not right. like somebody mis miscopied right. it. So right. it's one or two. Yeah, yeah. it's right. not. Yeah, it's not. It's not a um, an outlier. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's one of the options it's for one of the faith options. language in John's gospel. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's let's move on. So um, the next part of the prayer, I think, may seem strange. Jesus prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's verses 22 and 23. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, we've encountered the theme of Jesus' glory before 
Jesus glorifies God by fulfilling God's will, which leads to his own glorification on the cross, Mm -hmm. in the resurrection, and in the ascension to the right hand, where he's restored to the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed, as he's going to, as he mentions earlier on in John 17, 5. But what's, what I find difficult is how to understand how Jesus could give this glory to his disciples and how giving them this glory would make them one. Because we tend to think of Jesus' glory that he had with the Father before you know, before he became incarnate right, as right. being a, 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 a characteristic or a feature that he possessed in himself. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a feature of divinity. Yeah. 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 So how does he give that to them? Yeah. That's one, of my, that's one of my questions. And one thought is that Jesus calls them to glorify the Father just as he did. So he's speaking kind of figuratively, really, just, just you know, calling them to to speak the Father's words and do the Father's will just as mm-hmm. he did, just as he did. And, and as they do that, they will, you know, that God will enable them, that Jesus will enable them to bear much fruit so that they might glorify the Father mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. he did, which Jesus has said in verse right, in chapter right, right. 15. So perhaps the glory that Jesus gives them is the call to glorify God in the same way he did. And as they attend this task, it will enable them to be one. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what follows so that they may be one as we are one suggests that the experience they experience this unity in relationship with Jesus yeah. and therefore in relationship with the Father. So right. it goes on, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one. So it's like they are experiencing, in this case, the, the glory as it relates to Jesus. In terms of his relationship with the Father. It, 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 yes, and then yeah. that, that on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so this then seems to recall the idea that as they believe in Jesus, they are one with him and their relationship with him brings them into the same relationship that Jesus has with the father. We've seen that on a number of occasions. Um, I think in John 10 and in John 14, John 15, we've seen that mm-hmm. it, that's a, that's a, that's a theme in John's gospel. So the, the unity again is a relational one, which, which is consistent with what we find elsewhere. The question is how this constitutes giving the disciples the glory that the father had given to Jesus. And again, perhaps we're back to the idea of the disciples glorifying God by their discipleship, discipleship. you know, by, by doing the same things that Jesus did. Yes. I I don't know. This is, this is one that's, that's really (laughs) difficult for me. Well, I I wanted to jump right over this. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, um, um, one of the commentators that I look at, Ernst Hainchen says that the glory that Jesus passes to his disciples is the knowledge of the father. So again, it's that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. Actually, that's, that's, that's about as, clear concept that <laughs> yeah. i i think uh, that i've heard yeah. yeah yeah so then the outcome of this is that so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me and that's verse 23 now here it's interesting that the idea of believing that we saw earlier mm-hmm. you know Right. May they be one so that the world may believe that you sent me is, is replaced by the idea of knowing mm-hmm. so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved right. me. Right. And that's not unusual either in John's gospel. So in John six sixty nine, at the end of the bread of life discourse, when some of Jesus' disciples stopped following him and he turned to the 12, Peter says, you know, we have come to believe and know, mm-hmm. believe and, and know, know that you are the Holy One of right. God. Right. Or in John eight twenty eight, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also in John seventeen three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and mm-hmm, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. whom you have sent. So again, this this knowing is something that is not seen as being you know se- separate from or different from belief. It's 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 complementary to belief. It's right. you know, it's something it almost that stands, seems like a perfection of belief. Maybe that's wrong. I, I wouldn't say that. I would okay. say it's just just the, the believing and knowing go hand in hand. Okay. In John's okay. gospel. Okay. So, and again, notice especially the importance of knowing that God has sent Jesus, as we saw in verses 20 and 21 above, that, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, this is something that's essential to faith, is to believe that, that and, to, and to understand that, that Jesus has come from God, that he's not doing any of this on his own. Now, it might be tempting to read, and have loved them even as you have loved me, as a reference to God's love for the whole world. But... I think in this context, mm. we have to recognize that the antecedent of them is clearly the disciples. Okay, okay. The these of John mm-hmm. seventeen, uh, of John seventeen twenty, and and the ones who are earlier named as those whom you gave to me from the world, who have received the words you have given me, and both know and believe that you sent me. That's those, these are this is language of the earlier part of the prayer, oh, and oh, so the oh. them that you have loved them even as you have loved me is the idea that the world will not only recognize that God sent Jesus and therefore hopefully come to believe in Him, got it, but also they will recognize that God has loved the disciples. Oh, I got it. Even okay. as God has is loved that Him, frequently misunderstood. Well, I don't know if it is or not, but I think it would lend itself to some pretty okay. ready misunderstanding uh, that, yeah. that he's talking about the world. Okay. Because in this context, you know, the world is floating around in there. Right. Okay. But it seems to me that the them is not a reference to the world. But throughout this passage, they and them and these, they're all, it's the it's, disciples. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what's next what's the next petition then the next petition is in verse 24 father i desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world and again this picks up on several themes Mm -hmm. already seen in the farewell discourse that those who believe in him may be with me where i am as jesus said in chapter in john chapter 14 3 that they may see his glory and and i think especially of john 1 14 we have seen his glory the glory as of the father's only son full of grace Grace and and truth truth. Mm -hmm. you know that that's a a key passage Mm -hmm. in that and that this is a glory which jesus had with the father before the foundation of the world which Mm -hmm. jesus mentions in in chapter 17 verse 5 and so the interesting point i think that this verse adds is that jesus had that glory before the world existed because the Father loved him. Right. So in a sense, you know, you might say that the glory that Jesus had with God before the world existed was the fact that God loved him. And maybe that uh, helps us with the idea of how could Jesus give his glory to the disciples, you know, because right, right. maybe no, they, they, they get included that in that sense. same relationship uh-huh, of love. Uh-huh. But I think this also comes very close to the idea expressed by Karl Barth in the dogmatics, especially in, in book two, Sec, uh, book two, subsection two, that God chose Jesus mm-hmm. before the foundation of the world, and in choosing Him, God chose us all. Yeah, yeah, and actually, that that makes sense to me. That mm-hmm. that kind of a theological um, understanding exposition of this 
very dense passage. And that makes sense within at least, of course, you know, I'm a, a modern day reform person. So that's mm. the kind of, that's maybe the kind of theology I, I came with. However, I want to make an aside here because I am, um, before I, before I headed to seminary and studied formal theology, I really, really got stuck on a, a one God concept versus a, versus a triune God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this kind of, this this emphasis on Jesus chose before the foundation of the world was really really big on kind of my broad understanding of God's Trinity from the beginning of time to to the end of time, and so I know it was really helpful. I, I would say I would say for me the most helpful understanding of Trinity is relational. You yeah, know, it's, the, yeah. it's a relationship well, of love that the Father yeah. and the Son and the Spirit share with one another, and then and then what happens is that as we come to faith, they they include us in that relationship right. of love right. that they share exactly. with themselves. Exactly. I mean, that yeah. that's but that that relationship is ontological. That that is yes. From oh, the that beginning. is that and, is that is not just yeah. That is not just an economic Trinity. It's not just how the Trinity acts. It is who the Trinity is, is. in and of the the Godhead self. Exactly. You know, exactly. It is, yeah. It is yeah. a true reflection of the being of the Godhead. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, this explanation helps, this discussion helps solidify that. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing that here. And so it's, it's kind of this kind of refreshing actually in a yeah. way. Yeah. In its complexity. Okay. Good. Then we get to the kind of the, the summary of yeah. the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. And at this point, I think the prayer seems to begin to wrap up by summarizing themes from the whole chapter in verses 25 and 26. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love which you with which you have loved me may be put in may be in them, and I in them. And, you know, I will point out that uh, it's kind of disappointing to me that here we're back again to a negative view of the world. Mm -hmm. The world does not know you. Um, And it's also kind of an us versus them mentality. I know you and these that have sent me, they know, these, these know that you have sent me, but the world does not know you and the world does not know me. And, and so again, I would have to say that this, this aspect of the prayer of John 17 reflects the situation of the Johannine community, you know, that, that they feel themselves to be under attack and they, and, and, and so the, the, either the evangelist or the authors and or editors of the final version, the we of John 21, 24 have, you know, they have interpreted Jesus in a way that is, that is meant, I think, to, to comfort and to console these, these Christians in the Jahanian mm-hmm. community who are mm-hmm. feeling very much sure. under attack. They're feeling threatened. Right. Right. Well, and I, this all makes sense. And I, I do wonder if there's some, if the world already, God already knows the world, then is there any need to be sent out to preach to the world? I, am I asking the right question here? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, I think the, the key point here is that the world does not know you. Right. And so, so can it know? I mean. Can it, right. Is it, is it a futile effort? Right, right. right. I, I, to me, here, here's, here's my thinking about that, and that is that we are called to proclaim the message. Right. Uh, we are called to 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 proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in the in the synoptic version. We're called to to proclaim the truth of the words that Jesus gave to us in John's gospel, and and to share you know with with the world uh, God's love for them. Mm-hmm. Um, how they respond in this life is out of our hands. 
But I don't think, again, I've said this many times, I, I don't see there to be any necessity anywhere that one's final destiny, one's eternal destiny has to be determined in this life. I think, you know, how people respond ultimately, finally, face-to-face with Christ, that's that's the final determination. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm willing to entrust people's response or not into the hands of a, a gracious God and a, and a Savior who loved us enough to give his life for mm-hmm. us. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I still believe that it's important for us to to to. Uh, share the good news. Right. What people right. do with it is between right. them and God. Exactly. Exactly. And and I entrust. Uh, you know, I, I believe that God is gracious. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. I agree. I guess. I guess my my thought is with this is I feel like that maybe why they turned back to the it, negative view. To it almost seems futile, right? Them. It's like, well, part of it is they're circling their wagons. And right. so, you know, they're not going to interact with them because they're, 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 they're afraid of them. Although right. earlier on, right, in this same passage, it was like the unity of the of the community is right. what's going right. to convince the world to believe. So there's got to be some interaction right. uh, implicit there. Mm. But it seems like, you know, in the Johannian community, you have a circling of the wagons. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we see that so much today in a situation where Christians really aren't being threatened in any really yeah, tangible true, way, true. you know, right. in our country. Well, our country anyway, right? right. Not really. I mean, but people yeah. still use this language and they, they kind of have that kind of a hunker down mentality of we're under attack and we've got to, you know, we've got to defend mm-hmm. ourselves and Oh Lord, protect us from the world and this kind of thing. I, <laughs> right. I, right. I've I, honestly, I've had more, more evil done to me by by fellow church fellow fellow Christians than I've ever had done to me by people who were you know no, good point unbelievers right, right yeah so uh, yeah very it's very good interesting point so moving on to the last piece here um, the c- ultimate conclusion of this yeah piece. the final conclusion in verse twenty six seems to emphasize that Jesus has completed the work mm-hmm. that the Father gave him to do I made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so again, the language sounds like really the point is that it's all about the community and it's not about the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a little bit strange, you know, because we're coming back to this kind of almost defensive mentality where we, we pull within ourselves and we, and we kind of build the walls between the community and the, mm-hmm, and the world. Mm-hmm. And there's not this sense of go into yeah, all the world, the world and, and, and the you right? know, yeah. make disciples of all the nations. We don't see that here, mm-hmm. uh, but um, you know, in a sense, the work that Jesus did was to make God's name known to them and imparting to them the love with which God loved Jesus so that they might take part in the relationship Jesus shared mm-hmm. with the Father. I have to believe that wasn't just so that just for their own benefit. It was for the benefit of others. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's always, right. you know, God's blessings are always given to us for the sake of others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in this sense, the whole prayer seems to resonate with Jesus' final cry from the cross, it is finished in John 19.30. Jesus has accomplished his mission of glorifying the Father. Mm-hmm. He's also completed the task of delivering the word and the truth that the Father gave gave to him so the disciples are thus prepared to take up the work of delivering that message to the world as they live out their own mm-hmm. faithful discipleship after he's gone. Now I realize that's not necessarily that that delivering the message to the world is not necessarily something you might find from this passage, but I think it's clear from other passages I think in so. John. I think so too. That and that's that is where you've what they're got to put to it into that broader context. Yeah. You can't just 
stop. Yeah. Yeah. And they're able to do that. They they, they will be enabled to do that because of the unity Mm -hmm. that they have by participating in the relationship of love between Jesus and the Father. Yeah. So after all that, everybody, unity. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. All right. That's right. We'll talk about the reformers a little bit. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back. And as Christy mentioned earlier, uh, the Reformers found this text to be a very central passage for a lot of the key Reformation doctrines. And so, Christy, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. And I, as I got into this, it was, it was fascinating. Luther, Luther actually says, quote, I know of no other text that treats the chief articles of all Christian doctrine so richly. Mm. And, you know, this was a statement that ties God's identity in Christ as the cornerstone of a united church. Mm. Um, and it is, in, in my words, the wholeness of the body of Christ. Yeah. And um, um, according to Melanchthon, there's, there's this, what comes from this is how faith starts. And he has three different prongs of it. First, that um, unity comes through faith first that's the first thing the second one is that there is this love and that's that comes from the common faith and then ultimately there is the true church so i think we saw this when we were discussing alan's um interpretation there that he did of 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 this passage and so melanchthon is giving us this and here we see it's faith it's love and these ultimately are the marks of the true church Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's significant because the reformers were desirous to restore the true church of mm-hmm. Christ. And I like to use that word restore. And I think when we think of the Protestant right. Reformation, we think of protest or we think mm-hmm. of um, reform, but they wanted to restore. restore. Right. And yeah. so when you think about what does, does it mean to restore? What is the true church? That's where you find this passage so yeah. central. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I, I certainly applaud their efforts and I have benefited from them, right? Because I am a reformed pastor, right? Right, right. I, I will say, you know, when people ask me about my faith orientation, I always say I'm a member of the one true holy and apostolic church. And of course, in my mind, I include all Christian right. bodies, all Christian faiths, all all who who name the name of Jesus, in that, and that's probably a very different approach to say the the Catholic Church, uh, or right. maybe even the Episcopalian Church than 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 right. some of the reformers might have had. Um, um, but to me, uh, you know, I think it takes all of all of us to make up the whole church. Right. I I agree. I agree. And and you know their concern here, of course was that the Ro- the Roman church had strayed from that vision, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 if you will, the medieval church in particular. Um, mm-hmm. but and and to, I guess to be fair, the Roman Catholic church of today has moved beyond some absolutely. of the places where the medieval church was in that absolutely. day. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely has. And, um, you know, so wherein does the, and, and, and I love this, wherein does the true church lie? And so mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm counseling folks too, and my community has a very, very, very large Roman Catholic presence. And so many of the people at my church have maybe one member is Roman Catholic and one member is Presbyterian or children are going to Roman mm-hmm. Catholic schools. or And so I, I really try to go down of these things that are markers of the true church, you know, love and faith and the unity in Christ. Yeah. And that, to me, helps 
get rid of the denominationalism and really mm-hmm. move to what's you know what's your call on your life. That makes it less combative. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It's whole. <laughs> yes, indeed, the wholeness of the wholeness body of Christ. Body of Christ. I, like yep, yep. I like that. I like that. And I might I might use that as the title yeah, for my that sermon. Is the title. <laughs> that is the title. If anyone listens in advance, they'll know what the title is. Um, they want to remind us that Christ is eternal, uh, the, the reformers, as evidenced in this prayer, and can continue to intercede for us even when sitting at the right hand of the Father. You know, when I read that in your notes, it made me think, you know, even some of the reformers realized that this was, these were the words of Jesus taken out of the setting of the situation of Jesus' lifetime itself, mm-hmm. and rather more they're the words of the eternal Christ yes, yes. to the church of all days. They, they, they did. Some of them did. <laughs> so there was this kind of intuitive notion mm-hmm. that this is something beyond what Jesus in his earthly ministry yeah, would have yeah, said. Yeah, they did. And, of course, some of them were aware of the fathers mm-hmm. and some of the comments the fathers had made. So they mm-hmm. weren't... They weren't blinded by this passage. I think we tend to see, I don't want to pick on anyone too much, but I do think we tend to see some of our Bible, Bible literalists more in trouble here mm-hmm. um, yep. that, that aren't looking at the history of interpretation yes. or even making any sense of it at all. Yes. Um, it's, there's a real problem there. Yeah. So um, and another theme, and I, I love this, is um, the f- sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. Really important Reformation theme. Surely. But we don't deal with it. We just, yeah. it's so embedded in Protestant tradition that we don't really think about how important this is. But this is the knowledge that Christ died once for the sins of humanity. It is in itself sufficient for the salvation of all. Um, Protestant theology, it is who we are. And yet, um, there's important differences between the Roman church. Uh, the Roman mm-hmm. Catholic Church, mm-hmm. in particular, in the modern day, um, because in the Mass is a continued sacrifice of Christ yeah. that it must be performed over and over for a person to be in a state of grace. You know, as, as we talk about this, I wonder to what extent people who are Catholic members of a church recognize that that is the theology behind the math mass that the, that the priest is performing a sacrifice of, of Christ you know it is a, is a re-sacrificing of Christ every time they perform the mass I, I don't I don't know yeah I, I, that's just a question I don't I wonder it just kind of came into my you mind know, because I think people realize they, they recognize that they need to participate in the sacrament because it's a means of grace mm-hmm. And so, and grace is, in, you know, right. grace is how we're saved. And so we need that grace. Right. And so I get that. But, um, you know, I think they understand that part. But I wonder to what extent people understand this, this aspect of it. I mean, it's yeah. true. Th- yeah, I, I agree with you. This is, this is part and parcel of the Roman Catholic theology of mm-hmm. the Mass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, um, well, Ecolampadius, one of my favorite reformers, says, you are certain still today that the sacrifice of Christ is not invalid, but is all sufficient. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a Reformation voice, um, and perhaps th- perhaps responding to this mm-hmm. this constant sacrificing of Christ in the Mass. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly, and they were they were. I mean, it was really a concern, obviously. And but yeah, you're right. I think in the modern day. I, I don't know that that the average person sees it being much different, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. 
and 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 what that theology does and so yeah when like i mean i for, for example you i have a family where where you know one of the one of the adult daughters grew up in this church and then married a catholic mm-hmm. man and so now she's she's converted to catholicism you wonder to what extent she sees the 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 you know the eucharist that she participates mm-hmm. in as any different from you know the, the lord's supper that she participated in this church and they probably just assume it's some of the the ideas of some of the elements is having a different nature about how they convey grace, mm-hmm. but they don't understand this. And the problem with this leads to this, the next main point is this doctrine pairs with the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. and the authority of scripture, mm-hmm. particularly the witness of this, this text here. So in other words, when, when you have to continue to sacrifice Christ, mm-hmm. you are taking away God's, God's uh, ability or his 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 sacrifice mm-hmm. um, of Christ in the first place. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, oh, it wasn't enough. It's, it, it wasn't, wasn't enough. sufficient. It wasn't sufficient. We yeah. have to keep doing it. So, yeah. where's that additional power coming from? And it 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 lessens God's God's presence. I find it interesting that the that the Roman Catholic Church went that direction because you know the Book of Hebrews so clearly addresses this issue in terms of the you know the contrast between the sacrifices that the priests made in the Old Testament that had to be repeated and the, Jesus Jesus death was once and for well, all. <laughs> I'll tell you how that went. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is where I this is where I love being a historian because as a historian and a particularly historian who's who's trained as a secular historian, right? Mm-hmm. Even I'm a historian of the church, but I find that when I'm working in this area that folks that are his, that, that are that are trained within the church tradition somehow often um, often are not reminded as much of uh, control. This is power. Uh, this is power. Uh, this has nothing to do with theology. This has nothing to say. This has to do with power of the Roman Catholic well, Church. Well, I mean, when you have to be there every sun, every Sunday to receive the you, Mass, when you have you, to be there. You're certainly well, going to be there, right? And, and and honestly, they didn't go all yeah. the time, but it still gave the church the power, power over yeah. the population. Yeah. And so it be, and yeah, theology and um, power end up weaving themselves together, but but this is more about power mm-hmm. than it is about about theology, and it certainly is about interpretation of scripture, Surely. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it also takes away the Roman Catholic practice of penance. So you don't have to be doing things to right. earn your salvation, right. right? And we take this for granted as Protestants, but by insisting that all we need to, that uh, that we need to do the things to be right with God makes Christ's sacrifice incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, and here Christ says, "I am not only sacrificing myself for them, but for all who will believe through their preaching." Now, there's this within this is this emphasis on hearing the word and on the necessity of the scriptures as a witness. Um, and we kind of assume this as Protestants. But if you go back to the era of the Reformation, you realize that most people can't hear or understand the word because it is read in Latin. Right. It is printed in Latin. And so we realize today in particular that many uh, receive some knowledge from scriptures through imagery. But when looking at scripture in a more literal sense or in, a, in a, the, the words, um, there is this emphasis on hearing the word. And and how do they how do they hear if it's in a language they, they don't they understand? They don't hear. Right? They yeah. don't hear. So their their ideas of the scripture are pretty limited. Now I will mm. say this, and we'll we'll talk later. They probably knew 
those stories better than we might give them credit mm-hmm. for, at least basic basic literacy through the images. And basic you, Bible stories. You, yeah. And you know when we see those in the cathedrals that, and we see them in the churches that, that people have this basic um, understanding. I've talked about the Evangicube before. I mean, it's a way to teach a very simple story. Um, but, and, and the Reformers are un- going to underplay that, um, the significance of that. But again, we're talking about word, we're talking about spoken word, mm-hmm. and we're talking about scripture as being written word, um, and and that becomes then paramount. Well, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that the uh, the whole idea of, of Christ as the living word, scripture as the written word, and preaching as the spoken word, mm-hmm. that, that goes back to the Reformation. Oh, era. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about the, the word itself— and how, how biblical ideas were disseminated, because this is really a shift in the Reformation. And to some extent, um, the Reformation, I think we sometimes want to see it as just a religious movement, but it is also a movement that pushes us into, um, within a political social movement, into the modern era. Well, it's right? very much a cultural movement as it's well. It's a cultural yeah. movement, yeah. exactly. And so, and I've talked about how it's a, there's an emphasis on publishing. I mean, we, we, we have printing press. We can publish stuff for the first time cheaply. And so there is a push to publish scriptures in the vernaculars so people can read them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's an emphasis. This is where we get our catechisms, our, our, mm-hmm. our hymns, our, um, and um, our daily family devotionals. There is an understanding that people prior to the Reformation did not know Scripture, true doctrine, true, or the basics of theology. Um, so there's a great excitement about getting stuff published and out into the open. And believe me, it's sold. Yeah. And that's important, too. It's not like they just put it out there and it stayed there yeah. on the shelves. Yeah. People wanted it. They, they snatched f- it up. Yes. Mm-hmm. But between, and I really think, again, you have to tie it into this the, the humanist movement before, mm-hmm. which is really emphasizing all of these um, all of these studies that are uniquely human. Yeah, learning of language, for example, mm-hmm. and, and, and studying cultures, yep. studying Culture history. Culture and history yeah. and poetry and yeah. rhetoric. Yeah. And so there is, there's this, it's just, it's this entire paradigm shift for how the mm-hmm. world functions and the Reformation central to that. Um, now, and I think I've mentioned before the Roman Catholic Church is going to get involved with this in their own um, in their own Reformation, right? Mm-hmm. It, through mm-hmm. the Council of Trent, they they aren't going to be left in the in the dark. Um, this isn't maybe like an Orthodox Church that mm-hmm. doesn't go through a Reformation, right? right? right. I, and I'm pointing that out if you're paying attention to the news now, yeah. um, with some of um, some folks that are finding interest in the Orthodox Church, which is really looking has a really medieval worldview, frankly. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. indeed. So if you will, it's kind of the printing press operates as kind of a modern social media. Um, you know how today we're in that paradigm shift of moving to electronic means. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, these the th- published things were disseminated quite largely. And so my question was, to what extent could images then impart doctrine? I mean, we've talked about woodcuts in here mm-hmm. that accompany scripture. We've talked about um, images in the churches. And um, does that count? And what's important for us to know, it depends um, on the reformers. Um, 
Well, I think it would depend on the theology too. I mean, right? That's what I mean. How do you, you know, we we were talking about Mm -hmm. the the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. How Mm -hmm. do you depict that in a in a in a woodcut? You know, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, this idea is that the scriptures understood that we internalize it because the Holy Spirit is working through the scripture, Mm -hmm. and you know. I think most of us as modern people say, well, yeah, that could also happen through visual means, couldn't it? I mean, couldn't we? And of course, more of the spiritualist type folks. And so if we go to the radical reformers, they'd say, yeah, I, I can get this all through, mm-hmm. through music. Because and the spirit the talks to me directly. Work, you know, yeah. <laughs> working in me. Um, and I think today that we seem to understand we can know in different ways, we can learn in different Surely. ways is important. And, you know, for example, I think in, in our, our contemporary world that we might agree that um, music can be used. And, mm-hmm. um, but our, our reformers... I would argue, in fact, that most people, that, that the theology that most people who are members of churches affirm is probably, probably comes more from the hymns that they know Bless than from the Bible. Jesus I, is mine. How great thou art, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. I think I really do believe that the theology that most people can affirm comes more from the music uh, than it, it does from the does, Bible. It probably does because it, is, it, it has a mnemonic of memory. It comes in a different yeah. part of our brains. We I think know it just shapes. Now. I think it just has, a, you know, mm-hmm. because, because it's something that we've sung over and over again. It's not like we stand up and recite scripture over and over again, right? right. But we, we sing these songs over right. and over again, and so it kind of gets ingrained into us. So let me, let me tell you, our reformers are in two different camps. The Lutherans, and particularly Martin Luther, and of course our, our hymn singing, um, maintained that while scripture was central to learning, that other forms for communication could assist the word. Um, and so, of course, that music for him was central. The, mm-hmm. the singing, he, he, he was out there looking for people to write hymns um, and, and put words to it that could help people learn the tenets of the faith. But our Reformed tradition tended to believe that images and music distracted from the word and actually sought to remove images and music from the church. Quoting Calvin, quote, Let us remember that the Son of God, who alone is competent to judge, does not approve of any other faith than that which is drawn from the doctrine of the apostles, and sure information of that doctrine will be found nowhere else than in their writings. We must also observe that form to believe through the word, which means that faith springs from hearing because the outward preaching is the instrument by which God draws us to faith. Well, I guess he makes himself himself pretty clear on that. Yes, (laughs) yes. So, I mean, and we see this, and there's a movement um, to basically remove all the images from the churches, um, the Reformed churches, the whitewashing of the walls even. Um, we are removing and dismantling organs so that, and there is some singing, but it's these metrical psalms. It's all in unison. It's really slow and dirgy. And if you're a Presbyterian, you can find, we still have some of these, yeah. these tunes in our in our hymnals. Very or in our, in our Book of Common Worship, we have that. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, know that they're sung much slower than we ever sing them. Well, you mentioned old 100th and, mm-hmm. you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow, yes, you know, yes, and, yes, and yes, that yes. it would be much, much slower. Much praise slow. God yes. from Yes, just painful. Yeah, because you're supposed slow. to be literally thinking on each word. Sort of a contemplative kind Almost, of thing. Almost, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, 
it's important to know that in both the Reformed tradition and the Lutheran tradition, and frankly, the Roman Catholic tradition eventually, but that the, the medieval church had gone way too far in, in how the word was convoluted, right? The Roman church in music, for example, had these thick, thick musical settings where the language was so heavily layered that nobody could pick out what it was. Well, you know, it makes me think of some of these beautiful oratorios that we have in our musical canon. And, and I mean, you're right, unless you understand the language mm-hmm. and, and there are different voices all kind of repeating and singing mm-hmm. over one another. And, and unless you can understand the language, it can really get convoluted. If they're singing in Latin, especially. Right. Oh, my goodness. Right, right. And, and the medieval works were even, were even less uh, homogenous, shall I say, mm. than than what you would see in a modern work. Oh, really? um, yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of I almost liken it to modern music actually yeah. because it it was it was so far away from the word. And of course again, this is all impacted by the humanists where the the rhetoric and the words all have importance. And actually at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholics are going to deal with this too. Mm-hmm. And they're really going to pare down what they're going to allow as service music at, at that point. And, mm-hmm. and that's where like the great Palestrina comes up um, as, as, as being kind of the, the new composer for the Roman Catholic tradition. So there's recognition that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and likewise, um, for example, images, while images are supported by Luther, they still had their own bits of taking down what what would be distracting from the word. So they wanted to make sure the images were appropriate to uh, to scripture. So they were giving right. the right message. So you're going to get rid of, for example, obviously all the saints, all the statues mm-hmm. of saints, all of, um, uh, you're going to get rid of, of images that, um, that don't show Christ in his humanity, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this fancy stuff <laughs> um, is central to how we know God. Yeah. Um, and the scriptures are witness um, to Christ that our only way to know God is through Christ. And it is only in through Christ that we know God's intentions. Sounds like Calvin, but it is also mm. in Luther. Um, if you do not know God through Christ, then you don't really know God. Mm, Um, And then finally, um, one of the other questions is, who constitutes the church? This kind of takes us back to our big unity question. And their opinion is from from, from the elect to select people to universalism when when they're discussing this passage. All all of it. The whole gamut, huh? Yeah, Yeah. the whole gamut. Um, There's a fellow... Erasmus Sarsenius, a Lutheran reformer who initially worked with Philip Melanchthon, claimed that this doctrine was for all people and that no one had any advantage. So mm. he was kind of an early universalist. Mm. Um, but um, there is clear recognition of the impact of the words unity, which comes to the believer. There is clearly a recognition of humanity being outside the union without the work of Christ. And ultimately, the recording of the word and spreading it is what is central. It kind of reminds me that of the age-old question, will the tree make a sound even if nobody heard it? If a tree falls <laughs> in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it still make a does sound? it still make a sound, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, in other words... Could Christ have died for our sins if no one knew about it? <laughs> I mean, that's how, I, that's how I'm interpreting what wow. they're saying, yeah. right? So yeah. at least in the minds of reformers, you can't believe and be united to Christ without hearing the word. So in other words, 
you're not saved if you don't know who Christ is, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. because I think we have this assumption that if you're chosen, then, I mean, God can save whoever God wants. Mm-hmm. But this idea that this all goes together is that you will know Christ or you have to know Christ. You have to. Through the scriptures. Yeah, through the scriptures, right? Yeah. So yeah. really interesting stuff. Um, um, and I, as I said, I think some of these issues that I'm not sure they fully deal with, but lead us to a lot of our questioning in the modern age, mm-hmm. right? Um, to how, you know, spreading the word. I think that's why some people now it's so important. The Gideons are still spreading out mm-hmm. these Bibles. These people mm-hmm. have to be able to hear the word right. in order to be saved. The which, missionary movement. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then um, if you are in, finally, if you're in, united to Christ, then you can rely on eternal life. Assurance of salvation. Um, in this, we are reminded, according to the reformers, of the depth of God's love and Christ's love for us. There is an assurance that comes forth here that is very much part of the Protestant tradition. It is, again, part of the theology that we take for granted, but is really emphasized in the writings of the reformers. Mm-hmm. According to Caspar Kreutziger, to contemplate God's love for us is part of our faith. It is impossible to contemplate without it. As he said, we should consider it certain that we are accepted, heard, and saved. Well, and I think that resonates with with our situation still today because yep. who doesn't need to know that God loves them? I mean, among among Christians, I, I find it to be you know central to my experience of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. I I agree. I yeah. agree. I I don't think um, I, I I do think there's a call on Christians to from the very beginning to go out and spread the word, mm-hmm. if, if that is in word and act. And when you don't, people people aren't going to just magically no. show up that's right, right. that's yeah. right okay thanks thanks hi everybody we're back now i think one of the interesting things we pointed out today was that you know when you take out your bible this is all in red letters we assume Jesus said it, and as we talk today, there's really likely that Jesus didn't say this prayer. Um, not only from modern is this recognized by modern um, uh, critics, but also by the by the fathers. I mean, this is part of the church tradition, and yet my question is, it's in red letters. And do you <laughs> tell your do you tell your congregation this? Do you how, what do you do? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier in my segment. I have tended to avoid preaching on this passage. <laughs> I, I just confess, I have, I have tended to avoid <laughs> preaching on this passage. Um, I, you know, I'm not necessarily proud of that, but I have avoided it. And mainly it's because of that very negative view of the world that seems to be conveyed by this passage. And I don't want to reinforce that notion of the world is a threat and you have to beware of the world and you have mm-hmm. to see, you know, you see the world as this, uh, in this negative light. I, I don't, I don't embrace that. I think Jesus, I think Jesus saw the world. I think Jesus loved the world mm-hmm. with all of its messiness. And, and, you know, Jesus was one who would go out and engage the world as it was, uh, with with love and with kindness and and with respect and with dignity and by doing so you know he transformed people's lives mm-hmm. and I think that's the calling that we're that we're given. So you know, for a long time I've tended to avoid this passage. Um, 
I've sort of made the commitment as we're doing these podcasts that that you know I'm making the I'm doing the preparation for this passage, so I'm going to go ahead and preach on it. I've <laughs> preached on a number of passages that I've never preached on in my ministry career. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been I've been a Presbyterian pastor now for 16 years, mm-hmm. and I was I was I've been ordained for uh, 34 years. Right, so, right. You know, it's 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 been something I've avoided. Um. I do, when I preach on this passage, I do say that Jesus, I do attribute it to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I don't spend time in a sermon going into all the details of why, you know, how there's, you know, the Johannine version right. of Jesus and the voice of the evangelist and the, and the theological viewpoint of the we, of the final editors of the, of the, of the, of the gospel as we have it. Because I don't think that most people in the pews are able to view the Bible from that nuanced of a position. Mm -hmm. I think most people are still in this idea of this is the word of the Lord. Right. Thanks be to God. Right. You know, know, it's an interesting thing because, first of all, I'm quite sure there are some pastors who do go into the weeds Mm -hmm. like this. Um, but, and then, and then there's a part of me that says, well, you know, maybe this truth of the scripture really needs to be out there for them. Right. Well, James Smart certainly, certainly believes so. He wrote a book back in the late sixties, early seventies called the strange silence of the Bible in the church, where he basically advocated that pastors should be teaching their, their, their people, all of this biblical criticism. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say to what end though, how right, does that help right. them? But yeah, but you know when when you think about, I'm so surprised. I get in trouble. I, I I I how often the simple story is what speaks to somebody. The story mm-hmm. that illuminates the scripture. And not that I'm saying to go to stealth stories, but I do think there's something to be said about a simpler message that speaks mm-hmm. right. not only to the intellect but also to the heart. And I think if it's just, I think when you're doing all this. This deep teaching, and, and all of a sudden they come away with, yeah, but so what? It gets so too intellectual. Yeah. yeah. How, does how, does that, that, how does that affect me? Yeah. How does that help me? What's what's the message right. we want right. people to come away with? Right, and and that's my that's my goal in, in preaching, is to is to provide a message that will be beneficial to the people. Mm-hmm. And so I preached on this earlier passage in John 17 that is so negative about the world and protecting right. the disciples from the world. I preached on that last year, mm-hmm. and I did say Jesus. Mm-hmm. But here's what I do. First of all, I don't really emphasize the negative part about the world. I emphasize more the positive themes of, you know, that that we know Christ and we know the truth through Christ and we know the Father through Christ and that this is a comfort and an assurance to us. Mm-hmm. The other thing I do is I do say Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I attribute it to Jesus, even though, you know, intellectually, I would have to say that, well, it's the kind of the combined voice of the Johannine interpretation of Jesus and the voice of the evangelist and the voice of the of the final editors. Even right. I know that even though I know that qualification intellectually, right. I'm comfortable taking those themes because because some of those themes are found throughout the right. Johannine version right. of Jesus, right? right? The, the throughout the whole John, John's Gospel, and, and you know, yeah, this gives us an interpretation. But all the all the new the whole New Testament is new is interpretation, right? Right, right, right. And so so, so I accept John's gospel as a valid interpretation of Jesus, even though there's some passages that I think reflect more the understanding of the final right. editors and their situation of conflict that they were addressing in their in their community. I don't push that. I don't I don't feel bound, I don't feel obligated to 
to, to convey that as word of God, because I don't think it is word of God. I think that's more culturally bound mm-hmm. uh, ideas that were helpful to the Johannian community, but I see them as being detrimental, especially to the church in the United States today, where people are sort of almost have this paranoia of the world is out to get me. And I don't, I don't see that. Right, right, so, right, so right, I, right. you know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's healthy, actually. I don't think that's healthy. It's with- not. With, with being disciples, with healing the world, and with doing God's ministry. I think when you are in that kind of fear-based sense of identity, I, th- I don't think you can do what you're asked to do. Yeah. I and think so, you're misinterpreting it. So I can, I, can, I can take some of the more positive themes, and I can preach on those, mm-hmm. and I can attribute those to Jesus because I, I believe these are themes that are throughout John's gospel. Right. That that are that are part of John's understanding of who Jesus was, mm-hmm. and and it's all. I mean, it's Matthew's understanding of who Jesus. It's right, Mark's right. understanding. It's Luke's right. understanding. I say Jesus for all of that, and I feel confident doing that. I don't feel like I'm misrepresenting anything. I don't feel like I'm being dishonest. I'm not right. because I'm not you know sharing with them my intellectual understanding of the historical right. situation. Um, I'm I'm trying to offer a message that is helpful to my people in their lives. Right, and you know I mean I've got people dealing with, you know. Um, all kinds of losses right yeah. now. And, yeah. and you know, they're not here on Sunday morning to have a lesson in biblical criticism. Right, right. They're here to yes. hear some sort of message that, that is going to help them with their lives. I think that's a huge, a huge importance there is, is, is when, what are people here? They're here to hear the good word. To hear the good news, yeah, and and sometimes, and I I I tell, remind myself that you know, and I think about, um, <laughs> John telling us this. I'm I'm telling you, so you you believe, you know, so, so you could come to believe, and and so it's it's about the good news, and it's about it's about those elements which your people need to hear, and I think I think that's really really important. But as I said, I think it, I do think especially for new pastors. There's this sense of oh I I've got to go out and, and pull this apart for like like right. what was his name uh, James Smart James Smart yeah yes. James Smart yes and um um I I I think there's a bit of a, a danger in that well yeah. I do too yeah and you know I mean the the sermon that I preached on that passage last year I, I entitled it God's Truth and I, I talked about the issue of where do we find truth and and you know I mm-hmm. think we can all relate to this fact you know it's sort of I was sort of bouncing off of the 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 statement in 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 the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 59:14 that truth stumbles in the public square mm-hmm. you know and and we oh, yeah. we can see that right in our society right. with all of the challenges we have and you know one of the themes of this prayer is that Jesus taught his disciples a unique kind of truth. It's it's the truth of a relationship with God, right? Mm-hmm. It's a truth of the love that he had for God and his willingness to obey God and do God's will and and and, and therefore the love that God had for him and that relationship that they mm-hmm. shared. It's a truth of relationship. It's a truth of love. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not the truth of mathematics or science or right. economics, you know. It's right. a different kind of truth. And and so I 
that is a theme that runs throughout John's gospel. Mm-hmm. I have no problem attributing that to Jesus right. because it is part and parcel of, of the Johannine yep, yep. interpretation of Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I could say this is John's interpretation of Jesus in my, in my sermon, but that would just be confusing. It, to people, I think it'd I think. be really, really confusing. Most yeah. people aren't, aren't trained in hermeneutics the way mm-hmm. we are. And most, you know, when, when you're trained in hermeneutics, I, I mean, an attorney might be able to understand that, right? Because right. That's what that's what right. the law is about is interpretation, right? But but you know, and and as pastors, we're trained in hermeneutics. Right. But most people don't have no. that kind of background, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. you know. And and I think it just becomes confusing. I so, think so too. I, I am willing to preach on this passage and say Jesus okay. and attribute it to Jesus yeah. because I, I am I am trying to pull out the themes. I, I don't really focus on the themes that are more negative and, and right. that I think are more reflective of of the situation in the Johannine community. Right. I am trying to pull out the themes that are more um, consistent in John's gospel, and I think. You know, John's right. gospel is a, a valid and sufficient witness to that one way of looking at Jesus. And so I, I, yeah. I mean, from that standpoint, I'm happy, happy to say Jesus. Good. Yeah. Well, and I think and I hope that we helped you all, all, all walk through this so that you have that clarity as you go and, and prepare yeah. your sermons. Because... Um, it's not obvious necessarily, but I, I do think... Well, and it's I not easy. Know. And it's, it's it, I mean, it's, as I said, I mean, you know, for years I've avoided this, this passage. And, and so, you know... Yes. I, <laughs> well, and I think at the beginning I was thinking it wasn't used because in the, in the lectionary it says many people just jump to the ascension this day. They don't even yeah, do this. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yes. And, right. and, you know, you can see how the temptation's there. <laughs> I understand. But I'm but going I, for it. So, I am too. So, I am too. That's Sunday. So. I am too. Well, we should we should almost get maybe we'll give a report on how it goes. Okay. But anyway, yep. um, we will see you next week. Okay, thanks. thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.